Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the YWCA San Antonio's podcast, Let's Talk Conversations on Gender and Race. We have an incredible episode for you today. We're going to be discussing the leadership gap, what it means for mothers, what it means for women, and especially the underrepresentation of women of color in executive level positions. We're joined by two incredible women, Melissa Vela Williamson. She's an award winning communicator over 16 years of experience in the field. She's worked for agencies, corporations, and nonprofits. Today, she serves the community as chief communication architect of her own firm, MVW Communications. She also gives back to the community. She serves on several nonprofit boards or committees. She's worked for over 65 organizations in the city, such as HEB, Meals on Wheels, uh, etc. She's an amazing community leader and a mom. We're also joined by Laura Elizabeth Mays, another seasoned award-winning communication strategist with over 15 years of experience. She's currently serving as the youngest member of the city's executive team in a role of assistant director of government and public affairs at the city of San Antonio. She's been managing communications for the city throughout the COVID-19 pandemic brings a wealth of experience. She is also a mom uh, to baby Marisa, who she posts about affectionately on social media using hashtag mini maze. So without further ado, let's get the conversation going. All right, Laura and Melissa, we are so happy to have you all join in this super important conversation. As you all know, the work of the YWCA is in empowering women, and we do that through a variety of ways. And one of them is this wage equity awareness campaign that we have um, ongoing right now. Um, That looks at the the pay gap um, uh, part of gender equity. Um, But what we're going to go into today has is linked to that and it has other dynamics and components to it so the leadership gap right you know women are just something like five percent of fortune 500 ceos and that's actually down um from six percent in 2017 so you know in recent decades women women's gains have slowed Um, women are only seven percent of the top executives in fortune 100 companies um, you know, they hold just 19% of S&P uh, 1500 board seats. I mean, and the, the, the numbers just go on and on and on. Both of you are exemplars. Both of you are successful women in your fields and realm. So let's start out by having folks get to know a little bit more about you, about your climb, so to speak, how you, how you got to where you are now. Um, so tell us a little, little, a little bit about this. Let me hand it over to Laura. Thank you, Coda, and thank you, Melissa, for joining me for this conversation. And um, let me thank you, too, for the work that you're doing to inspire young women, because um, we're raising the next generations. You know, we each, before this got started, talked about the different ages that our daughters are in, um, and it's, they're inheriting an entirely different world than what we grew up in, and it's really important. Um, I think for me, you know, I grew up in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, my mother was a migrant worker, um, picked strawberries in the fields. Um, my dad grew up working class, um, working several different jobs. They both hadn't graduated college. Um, so education was really a key fundamental priority for both my brother and me because 
um, we knew we'd be the first in our families to graduate with a college degree. And so that was always like the number one goal. Um, but I also remember my dad always telling me like, Miha, you have several strikes against you and you're going to have to work three times as hard. Number one, you're a woman. Number two, you're a Latina. And number three, um, you know, you're, you're going to be moving to another place and you're not from there and it's going to be a different culture. This is, I grew up in McAllen. Um, so I always thought of those three things as I approached my path to work. Um, I, growing up, wanted to be in forensic pathology, which is like now people who know me are like, what? That's totally different than, than what I wanted. Um, but I took an organic chemistry class, found that wasn't for me, and ended up going into public service. Um, I did an internship in communications and public relations, and I credit that internship with changing my entire career trajectory because not only did it introduce me to PR, but it intru introduced me to municipal government. And uh, that has been my passion. Um, the reason I love it so much is because it's everything from streets, sidewalks, barking dogs outside your house, um, trash pickup, water, electricity. It's all those like really basic, basic needs um, that we're able to provide to the community and being able to play a very small role in that is important. Um, so I, throughout my career, I worked in the private sector and ultimately found my way back to government. Um, I joined the city of San Antonio in 2015 as a communication strategist and worked on our public participation efforts. Uh, from there, I was able to work on our tricentennial celebration, um, was promoted to chief communications officer, and now to assistant director of government and public affairs, where I am the youngest member of the city's executive team, um, which always presents sometimes a challenge because I'm young, and again, I'm Latina, <laughs> and I have a different worldview. Um, but it's, it's been a really rewarding career at the city. Can I just say also how, how amazing that your dad kind of sent you out into the world with like this reminder of these are the barriers going, you're going to face. These are the challenges you're going to face just based on who you are. And I think that's super important and powerful when we talk about allyship. Um, and also just about, you know, preparing our, our daughters for, for that world. Um, you know, the leadership gap, we talk about the underrepresentation of women um, in these higher roles within organizations and companies. And uh, Melissa, I know you have a journey uh, to, get to, to get to where you are now. Um, so let's, let's go over to you. Tell us about your climb. And that's interesting, Laura, your story resonates a lot. And I would have to say that I think my biological dad inspired some things in me too, but for very different reasons. Um, my mother, um, you know, got married at 18. She was actually living and she's from McAllen, Texas. So, hey, hey, Valley. Um, but, but she married my dad and a lot of the decisions she made shaped the decisions I make now because she told me stories about him leaving the family. And so I have an absentee deadbeat biological dad. And they were married 11 years and she didn't have her own education, her own degree, um, her own house, her own anything when he decided he didn't want to be responsible for a family anymore. And um, being in McAllen, it was much more of a small town back then. So she moved up to San Antonio to escape some of the cheese men, the gossip and the, the bad feelings that were around there. And so she really had to start over from scratch um, and her whole paradigm and world shifted. And so she had three kids. I have two older brothers at the time and then me. And she, she taught me from a young age that, you know, 
you need to earn things that no one can take away from you, like your education. And because, you know, you don't want to put all your investment in a romantic relationship or marriage and something shifts or that partner goes away for whatever reason, and you're left holding nothing. So that really uh, drove a lot of the decisions I've made early on, and even the kind of partner I ended up with in a spouse, um, that I don't need you, you should compliment my life, and I should compliment yours, um, but neither one of us will weigh each other down in this journey, right? Because it's hard enough. And um, so that was a part of like the framework that I, I've walked through is, um, you know, really basing a lot of what I did on my own merit. I also grew up as an obese child. And by the time I was um, a freshman at St. Mary's, I was a hundred pound larger than I am now. Um, and so you can imagine the way people treated me as I grew up that I knew I was smart. I knew I had gifts, but they were still judging me on my outward appearance. And so I think that really actually built a lot of substance and value um, in me that I look for people who prove that they're good over time and patterns. And I don't just get excited by what's shiny and flashy um, because our those aesthetics can change and the way people mm -hmm. have treated me has changed. So a lot of that really drove some of the things that I did. I was the first in my family um, to get a four-year degree and um, look after getting my bachelor's and um, for me, I made a strategic choice as a high school senior. Um, I learned how fun it was to actually, you know, like push myself and get good grades and how amazing the kids were in the AP classes. And, oh, okay, these are my peers. I can run faster. And they inspired me. That competition inspired me. So I went to St. Mary's because it was a smaller class size. And I was afraid that I would get lost at a larger university, not knowing my way. Um, I certainly wasn't brave enough to move, you know, into another city yet, um, but kind of being the pioneer of my family, I think that was risky enough for, for my mother and everyone else. Um, but St. Mary's was expensive enough that I was driven to graduate because I'd seen um, my brothers drop out of community college. And so the, the risk and the cost was low enough for them to like not follow through. Uh, I, I kind of reversed engineer my way into a lot of things. Went to St. Mary's, um, an internship and, and uh, a senior capstone opened my eyes to like Laura, I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian. And then when I got into labs, I'm like, I can't do this, <laughs> right? Um, but I loved people and I loved um, relationships. And I knew a lot about that because um, that was a big currency in my mom's life, not having a lot of capital or money or, or, or so she made connections everywhere she went. So she taught me that and I could do that. And so I learned about PR um, my last semester and, and it just so happened that um, uh, I was working in my college job, I worked at the gym and I checked in people. And so I would talk to everybody about what I was doing and I needed to find a job because St. Mary's was so expensive. What was I going to do? And um, so I took a job in, in doing some grant program type writing and work. Um, but I had my eye on PR because it sounded like a nice combination of everything. So um, just telling a lot of people about what my vision was and what I was trying to achieve and, and um, help lead someone to connect me to a, a PR owner. So I've worked my up my way up through the field from a Hispanic boutique um, agency owned by some uh, local um, leaders here. It was um, in South Southtown in San Antonio. And then I went um, in-house at Big Brothers Big Sister, so a larger nonprofit. Did a lot of great work there. Um, learned a lot about diversity and youth and serving the community through our skill set. 
and uh, worked at HEB for about six years in the corporate office. And there I did diversity and inclusion, which at HEB um, very much felt like a lot of, um, you know, inclusive and kind of bridge building um, advocacy and helping historically disenfranchised groups, but uh, special eye on women because I was becoming, um, identifying more, I think, as having like feminist qualities. So, um, you know, that, that kind of, um, brought me out. So I was in diversity and inclusion about four years and then moved over to um, health and wellness communication as well as culture. So that kind of drew that deeper. And then I actually worked with Laura at KGB Texas. Um, and that was my last traditional job. But I ended up starting my own firm, MVW Communications, in 2015, largely because what I found, talking about the leadership gap, is the higher up I went in my career, the further down my family felt like they were mm -hmm. on that ladder. And, um, and, and part of me controlling the trajectory of, me of, of life going further, um, particularly in public relations was, well, I had to be able to really design what that career would be like from then on. And a big catalyst was that I had children, my children had been schooled downtown and the school's having uh, financial troubles and I knew I needed to move them to my side of town, um, but I couldn't make that commute on time and be a leader and not be, you know, feel that that rub when you have to leave at five to just physically yeah. drive across town and, and get your children. Um, and as part of me wanting to see them and their um, achievements at school and whatnot, I needed to be physically located. So even five years ago, Laura and Coda, like that was very counterculture to work remotely you know, and I was like, I'm still good at my job. I'm still smart. I just can't sit here in this cube. Yeah, I think it took a pandemic to make that the normative framework under which we can operate in our jobs. Absolutely. <laughs> um, it's so true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, so, uh, you know, Melissa, you've been, you, you talked about, you know, reverse engineering, you, you started out already with some, some disadvantages, structural disadvantages. Um, and so uh, we touched a little bit on, you know, some of the, the challenges in, in as being a leader, being a mom, but um, let me, let me go over to Laura. Um, tell me about in now that you've, you know, you're, you've climbed your, you are in this higher position, what have been some of the, uh, I don't know, maybe top two or three more cha most challenging obstacles that you've faced on, on the way there? I love that question um, because it, when you say climb, you know, I think all three of us probably have the same goal, right? That when our daughters enter the workforce, they shouldn't have to claw their way through the climb. It's our, I think for me, especially, it's my hope that that glass ceiling is in pieces on the floor and swept away. Um, but I think for me, one of the challenges was, has always been that there's not a mold of what that Latina leader in an executive role looks like for me. Um, either they were coming into a position of leadership as I was at the same time, or it was just kind of like you weren't thought of as somebody who would be considered for a leadership position. So um, I think that's been a really critical challenge for, for me as a, as a Latina. Um, and also being, you know, oftentimes the only person of color, only woman of color in the room, and you're kind of wondering, well, why am I here? Did they pick me because they needed to 
check a box or you have this imposter syndrome, like, well, should I be here? I don't, I don't quite fit in. Um, but fortunately, um, especially at the city of San Antonio, I've had some really great peers who have always said, you know, you're in the room for a reason, you earned your seat. Um, and, and for me, I've really tried to encapsulate that and bring that belief now that now that I do have that seat in the room, what can I do to bring up the person behind me um, and not just pull up a chair for them, but encourage them to speak up just like my bosses did for me. Um, and which is like funny, because I think both of you know me, you know, I'm very talkative, I'm very outgoing. Um, but when it comes to being in a situation where you're the only person of color, like it can be kind of hard to find your voice or, or you're worried you're going to be stereotyped in a certain way. Um, so I think that's been kind of challenging to overcome throughout my career, for sure. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of that, Laura. And I think part of what, what you're doing and you said is, is pushing yourself to like, just take off that identifier for a minute. Like, it's not even about that, right? You're there because you're smart. You're there because you have the right brain or acumen or background or experience. Like, it's not about being a person of color at this moment. Mm -hmm. And I do feel like throughout my career, I have been a little more resilient because I play different cards at different times. And let's just be honest. There's sometimes being, you know, very um, researched and, and of the culture, very helpful in our work. And there's sometimes that that can be limiting. I think one of the challenges I've seen is um, being seen as intelligent across categories and industries and topics and cultures um, and battling in some ways that Hispanic or Latina identity, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, but, I mean, but both of you are, are so spot on. This is sort of speaks to the reality is that there's work that we as Latinas, as women of color, there's a work that black women, there's work that women of color in general have to do that, that, you know, our counterparts don't have to. Um, so, you know, this leads me to the next question. Um, there's some global studies out there. There's some data that tells us that the proportion of women in senior leadership, um, it's, it's so different, right, based on, on re the regions of the world. And so, and so if we look at a place like North America, 29% of women are in senior management roles. But the bottom line is that in in a uh, country like like ours, um, you know the leadership gap, the wage gap, just the representation of women in certain occupations and fields is just so it's just too big. It's still persistent. So why do you think women are underrepresented in management roles? And I'll hop hop over um, back to Melissa and then to Laura, because Melissa, you touched on it a little bit at, at, at early on uh, in terms of being a mom. Yeah, you know, and, and I want to be fair to all types of women, you know, as, as we talk, because there's a lot that are not mothers and, and they feel in some ways disenfranchised for that in different scenarios. And I know that Melissa in her career before children is a little different than Melissa now, right after. I, I did have one supervisor, uh, a male, tell me, you're so much nicer now. <laughs> and, I, I, and I, you know, laugh and, and all that. And we can take that in a lot of ways. But um, part of what he was telling me was that um, I think I was so driven and, and having children helped me kind of ground a little bit some of that. And I'll say this carefully, but some of that ambition and where not everything was critical, right? I could kind of prioritize. Now, I think in terms of what you asked, Coda, why are we underrepresented? I would say in the U.S., it, it's pretty well known that we have a lot of issues in supporting 
um, childcare. It's very expensive. You have to be working at a certain level and making a certain income to be able to even afford childcare for one child. And then if you have multiple children, it just compounds the complexity and the cost. Um, one other really enlightening insight I had early on in my career when I was studying women as part of my diversity and inclusion role was um, I, I read this book and it really dived into this theory called the sticky floor theory. And um, the researchers saying, you know, based on interviews they had with women and all this data, they didn't see so much at, at that point in time, a glass ceiling being put on, on top of or above women. It was women opting out of higher level careers because of that dissonance between, for me to be a top leader, I have mm -hmm. to sacrifice so much time with my family or I have to travel a ton or I can't ever get to my daughter's play or my son's you know, basketball game, whatever that may be. Um, our drive to be connected to our families and a lot of times as primary caregivers, just wanting to have that flexibility is hard. So I would say um, childcare is an obstacle for sure. Wanting to be a primary caregiver and involved as a leader in our homes and our family is important. And, and can discourage us from raising our hands for those opportunities. And I would also say that, um, you know, sometimes those societal pressures and workplace pressures really get in the way. So not having flexible environments before these hybrid experiences or we could work from home. Um, you know, I know I hated in traditional workplaces when sometimes I couldn't get to work on time. You know, one poopy diaper, right? And everything changes or an emergency or an accident. And it's like, are you really grading me on my work? Because I didn't make it here at 8am. Like that didn't always seem right or fair. Um, so, you know, those things can be discouraging when you want to keep advancing. Laura, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I love what you said there, Melissa, because I, I think, you know, what you said is your, your mom career is a little bit different than your, your pre-career. And I think for me, um, one thing that resonated with me is I wasn't sure that I'd be able to have it all. <laughs> and I say it like that because I think like that's the, if anybody ever asks you that question, I, I refuse to answer it because I don't think anybody has it all. And if you do, you're not challenging yourself enough. Um, and that goes for men and women. Um, but I think I, I certainly struggled with this concept of I can get married and start a family and be an executive when to me um, in my 20s, like, having a career was what I wanted. That's what I wanted to do. I didn't really have any notions of starting a family at the time. Um, but then when it did come my time to um, get married and, and, and have a child, I was really scared of what that would do for my career. Um, would that put the brakes on it? Would I not have enough time? Um, would I not be present as a mother? And, you know, and we both work in communications, especially at the city. There's there's constant emergencies. Um, we've seen that through this pandemic. Um, but then there's also that sense of um, the commute time. I, I remember when I got promoted to my position, I had a coworker, um, and I'm not gonna name names, I will say <laughs> it was a woman, which is why I found this most disappointing, um, say, I don't know how you're gonna do this job if you have to leave at 5.30 to pick up your kid. And I'm just like, um, hello, a cell phone. I know. <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, that, that struck a chord with me because number one, I'm very competitive. So if somebody tells me I can't do something, well, let me show you what, <laughs> um, and so I, I made it my goal though, too, that as much as I wanted to be connected and be a rock star at work, um, my role is also to be a mother who inspires, um, my daughter, 
And even though I have to take calls sometimes when I'm making dinner, um, when she is able to say, I want to be a city manager when I grow up, which I've never met a three-year-old that has said that. And I promise I didn't, <laughs> like, <laughs> I promise I didn't uh, pay her to say that in front of the city manager, but it helps that she did. Um, but I mean, stuff like that is, is crucial. I think it, it's hard to be the executive you want to be when you don't see someone who looks like you. Um, and just looking back at the inauguration, I had my daughter sitting on my lap as we were watching and how impactful to now see a vice president, daughter of immigrants, woman of color, sworn in by the first woman of color to serve on the Supreme Court. And I'm just thinking the world that she inherits is so different than what we experienced growing up. And so I'm hopeful that, uh, again, like that's my goal is that when she enters the workforce, the glass ceiling is like something she heard about in a history book. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that it, you, and, 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 and with, with the awareness that, you know, our daughters um, and, and the future that they will operate in um, is, is, is the result of centuries of work by other women and women of color um, and just always bringing that recognition to, to light. Um, Melissa? Yeah, I want to, yeah, I'm like going crazy over here wanting to jump in because here's <laughs> the other part of that coin, ladies, is what's happening with our sons, right? So God knew what he was doing. He gave me a daughter, which I was like, woo, I know what to do with you. I'm going to take what my mother <laughs> gave me and like push that forward, but a son as well. And I read this other um, book that really opened my eyes and research that said, um, there's a researcher on the East Coast and he focuses on boys. And what he had to say was, we've been doing all this work in the last couple of generations to boost up women and girls. We're not putting that same kind of concentration on boys. And so we're not actually turning the tide because uh, we're solving half of the equation. So we have confident little girls and more ambitious women, but they cannot find counterparts if they, you know, um, looking for that in a partner. They, the boys or the men in the workplace have to be champions and allies and good partners for us as well. And so with my son, I'm very strategic about, you know, putting as much, um, you know, inclusive, you know, male loving as well, but feminist kind of uh, marketing pieces in his ears as my daughter so that he's a good partner. And you would love this, Laura, um, when he saw um, President Biden um, and our vice president, um, Kamala Harris on the TV screen, I think it was on the Super Bowl. My husband ran into the room and said, you know what your son just said? And I'm like, oh, what did he say? And he said, he just saw um, the president and vice president and he thought the president was the woman. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. He's like, he didn't even think that was a thing. He's just like, oh, she, there's our president. You know, she's wearing whatever. He remarked on the color of her, her top or something. I said, that's fantastic. That means we're doing a good job as a family trying to balance out so that he's a good champion, ally, supporter, partner in the future. So I would just want to make that point on this is that for a lot of the girl and women work we're doing, we have to champion that same type of work um, with our, our male counterparts. I, I love that you said that, Melissa, and Coda, I'll just jump in here, too, because I, I think you said it about partnership, right? Um, and I know for me, um, with my husband, um, he is 100% a partner in everything that I do, and 
Um, I think that's the other part that worried me about being like a working mom was like, there's a natural sense of, of this mental load that, that just comes with me being a type A personality too. So um, in my sense, if I'm cooking, that's what I love doing, but he's cleaning. Um, and if I have to work late, he's good with that. Um, if he needs to take her to the doctor because I have a council meeting, he's good with that and vice versa. Um, and so I, I think that's really critical for sure is to make sure that allies and partners, we all as women realize those can be men too. And for many times in my career, it was men who pulled up the seat for me and said, you have a role here, like speak up. Um, and same for, for my husband, who's, who's been such a great partner to me. That's super important because, you know, there, there certainly is demographic research that tells us that house, the household roles um, have slightly changed over time. So over something like, you know, 50, 50 years where uh, men are starting to carry a, a bit more of the, 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 the work um, that is related to taking care of the home and taking care of the children, um, which is good. That's a good structural change in terms of being able to, to, to you know, help women um, as partners um, advance in the workplace, their careers and that kind of thing, which leads me to the next question about structural change. Um, workplaces, what are some changes that workplaces can do to help close the leadership gap? So we, we you know, the leadership gap, again, the underrepresentation of women, but especially women of color. What are some changes that uh, workplaces um, can, uh, can implement? Um, Laura or Melissa, whoever wants to jump in there first. I'll, I'll take in then, Laura. I, I know you can evolve the conversation for sure. You know, one thing that I've realized um, that's pretty particular with women um, beyond, you know, parental support, and, and um, I did talk about being more open-minded, a silver lining the pandemic absolutely has been the realization by a lot of workplaces that work can happen in multiple places in multiple ways. I've had conference calls at the, you know, gas station pump that went fabulously. It doesn't matter, <laughs> right? Um, and and um, proof of that all day long. And so is Laura and everyone's experiencing that now. But I would say also um, this idea of um, asking women to be leaders, right? So when I, some of the corporate talk that you pick up is like, you know, we're, you were tapped for that role or you were picked for that role. And the idea is that I would see you, Coda, and say, you know what, Coda, I see something in you. I think you'd be a great, you know, supervisor or team leader or department or VP or whatever. I see that in you. Just telling another woman um, that can be so inspiring and encouraging um, because we often, you know, are just not taught to raise our hands or push forward like we were talking about before, like it's a climb, right? And not everyone's strong enough for that climb. Um, you know, most of the things that I've done, like I've been the first one and it's confusing and daunting. Um, so helping bring someone along and having that abundance mindset, there's enough work an opportunity and money out there for all of us. So let's all do what we're good at and help each other out. I, I think that that would be very helpful. Um, you know, structurally, I think there's a lot of advancements, but the idea of, looking at your, you know, your boardroom, looking at the makeup and saying, is there anything about our criteria, how we're judging candidates, how we're judging leaders, what are our employees scorecards are like that, that seems um, unfair. Is there any equitable things that we need to shore up, you know, as an organization, or we're realizing that 
you know, we're making everyone stay super late and, you know, maybe that skews a little differently for women, for example. Mm-hmm. Laura, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I like that. Uh, uh, just really quick to, to, to highlight that the need for di- um, diversity and inclusion policies, especially when it comes to looking at you know, if your organization has a board, what is the makeup of that board looks like? But I know, Laura, you have you have you have some insight here, too. <laughs> I do. Yeah. And, and I think that the structural changes um, start with policies, um, especially as it relates to leave um, maternity leave. Okay, parental leave, right? Like, you, yes, you become a mother, and it's a very difficult recovery, but it's also difficult on your partner. And I think the more men who normal normalize the idea of taking parental leave, the more it evens the playing field for both men and women, um, and reinforces this idea that men are parents too, and um, and that they play a vital role in the household. I know for me, um, my husband went right back to work, and um, I I was kind of there like all right I got to figure out who I am figure out who this baby is and make it work Um, and at the same time feeling like a completely different person Um, so I I think the more paid leave that's offered for parents the more flexibility in the workplace um, the better I think the city um, right away went to a remote setup and had it not been for that I can certainly feel like I would have been burnt out a long long time ago through this pandemic because um, I may have a conference call at 6, 13 um, to get things ready for the nightly briefing and work with my production crew to make, make sure those things are structured. But at the same time, I've got my laptop open. I've got dinner on the stove. My daughter's playing with something. And if I wasn't able to be home um, and still get my job done, I think I would have felt a bigger disconnect from, from my family. And then you start to feel like you're just not succeeding at anything um, because you're just kind of I got to be here at this time. I got to be here at this time. So I think those structural things are really important for sure um, to change in the workplace. Yeah, that's, you know, flexible workplace policies is definitely something that we hear over and over again in a conversation about, you know, what is it going to take? We need, and, and, you know, part of the answer to that is we need an infrastructure of care that acknowledges all of these roles that women play. So when we look at creating an infrastructure of care using policies, thinking about the gap settings exist for especially women of color, women overall, mothers, regardless of race, there's still a wage gap there. Um, So definitely flexible workplace policies even something like, um, you know, obviously, you know, universal childcare, all of these things are, 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 these are part of conversations that we have ongoing with, you know, our partners with the community, a part of the reason why this is something that we wanted to put on this podcast is because it's so important. Um, Melissa, do you want to add? Yeah, could I just want to, you know, actually give kudos to the YWCA here in San Antonio, because I was so proud of the work you all were doing in the spring, um, when, you know, the pandemic, spring of 2020, um, when the pandemic hit and so many things were shut down, so many daycare centers were shut down, schools were right. shut down, and a lot of working parents and a lot of single mothers didn't have options for childcare. And there are just some jobs that you cannot do over a computer, you yes. can't do remotely. And so there was a huge, huge disparity in, in that and people who just needed to work. 
um, financially and sometimes mentally, right? Get out and feel like your own person. Um, and you all had childcare available and doubled down on the mission. And, and that is so respectable and, and so helpful. And it was just a great example for nonprofits in our community that I pointed to several times, um, you know. <laughs> well, um, we we love you and appreciate it. Yeah, and the other thing I would say is that, like you and Laura were saying is, one thing I, I don't know what the policy would be called, but if we, you know, structurally can think a little bit more about grading on outcomes versus the output of people, right? It's not busy work that gets us to move the mission forward. It is the results. And what I have found is when I started my own business, I was graded completely differently. It's all about, you know, what were the results? They didn't question how I did it, you know, how I performed in, you know, every single meeting and I didn't have time to actually work on projects, right? I'm able to do my best, deepest work here. And it, it's completely fine as a consultant or a contractor, but it wasn't okay as an employee. And that makes very little sense to me. Laura, you have a thought on that? Yeah, you're, you're so right. Because um, I, I certainly remember a workplace that was like, you're in by eight and the day ends at 5.30, but then there was still like an expectation that you still answer your phone at all hours of the day. So that never made sense to me. Um, the city, I think, is a lot more flexible. And I, I credit my boss, um, Jeff Coyle, for that too. Because he's a parent and has always said, like, get your job done. Whenever you need to get it done, that's fine. Be available when I call you. All right, that's it. Um, and that's kind of the approach I take too, because a lot of, you know, if not for that flexibility, then you're kind of always trying to shove the workday into that certain time frame. But for me, it's definitely allowed me a lot more creativity. And there were many a night rocking my daughter to sleep where I got the idea because I wasn't focused on, I'm like, oh, I got to get this done. But instead, I'm, I'm just kind of relaxed. And then I think, oh, here's my next big creative idea, you know, and, and I think especially in communications, you're kind of looking for that you just never know when the idea is going to hit. So this concept of the workday being so structured, I think it's just very dated and, and doesn't allow for more creativity from, from both men and women. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's so important because, you know, the impact of motherhood on, on the leadership gap, on women's ability to, to move up. I mean, it's been dubbed the, the motherhood penalty. Yeah. I think asking about the culture right up front and getting, you know, you see right away, people's eyes shift. You'll see the nonverbals tell you part of that, a big part of that story. Um, and then you'll see, you know, you'll hear verbally and then see in writing what that is about. Um, I do think another silver lining this, of this pandemic time has been humanizing our leaders and the workplace and the workforce. And in some ways we're seeing in each other's homes and, and hearing and meeting each other's children or animals for the first time. So you know, if we can kind of embrace the humanity of who we are as people, um, that's a great place to to reconnect when we all get back in person is let's not put up the same barriers, right? This is a multiplication conversation and addition conversation. We don't have to be so divisive. Say, like what, what do we learn? How can we add that to what we already have or just kind of revise this policy or, or our cultural feelings around something a little bit, um, I think that would be a big step forward. I totally agree with that. Um, and then I think it goes back to that when you're in that position of leadership, what are you going to do to make parents feel more comfortable, men and women? Again, um, I'm thinking of a meeting I recently had that was after hours um, with a council office, and it was like a six o'clock meeting. So, I, you know, I told my husband, make sure 
you got her entertained, put the Paw Patrol on, like whatever it takes, you know, just make sure she's busy. Um, and I was so worried about that, that when I got on the call um, and noticed that the, there were two men on the call, both had babies on their laps, I felt kind of stupid for thinking so much about that aspect of it instead of thinking like, just like Melissa said, we're at home, we're meeting each other's kids, we're meeting pets and all that, um, and giving ourselves a little grace to, to be humans is really important. Um, and certainly my kiddos popped on to a couple of conference calls and said hello to people. And, um, you know, I, I think especially too, when you're working on something as heavy as the pandemic with as much bad news as there been, as there has been, to see a kiddo walk up, like, for me, it gives me hope. Like, this is why we're doing the job. This is what, what it's all about. Um, and so I, I often tell my staff, too, if they're like, oh, I'm so sorry, my, my toddler's screaming. I'm like, don't ever apologize for that. Like, we're invading your home <laughs> by calling you and being on a call. So don't worry about it. We'll get through it. And if you need to call me back when they settle down, that's fine, too. So what role do women, what, uh, what else can women do for other women to help move each other up with the consciousness, with the awareness of the underrepresentation of women of color in leadership roles. So as a woman in a leadership role, what would you advise, both of you, what would you advise to other women leaders? I mean, I would say first, watch your actions and then watch your messaging, right? Uh, some of the most cutting things I've seen and experienced in the workplace were by other women to women, right? And, and you know, no, we're not monolithic, no group is but we certainly can unite better. And, you know, you have that opportunity. Remember that there's abundance and there, you know, make opportunity, be that pioneer for someone else, be uplifting and supportive, you know, honor where every other person's perspective in life is, right? We don't know what they're coming into, what they just face, what they're dealing with at home um, or anywhere else. I, I would think that those are really important to keep in mind, you know, not being so judgmental of others based on superficial things like, what someone's wearing or not wearing, the makeup they have, they don't, the shoes. I mean, who cares? We're adults, right? We're professionals. And, um, you know, a lot of that happens within women and men have different conversations. And so sometimes I'm more comfortable um, working with men because of that. And, and that we need to get better at that. I think that's great. Um, one other point I wanted to just throw out there, ladies, is to talk about, you know, just financial wellness and literacy. And I, we talk a lot about um, the wage gap and a lot of um, what I'm reading lately is a little forward of that saying, you know, you can fix the wage gap, but if you don't um, fix financial literacy and an understanding of what to do with those monies and what not to do with your money, you'll never really have wealth and women with wealth make great change. Mm -hmm. so I would also challenge us to think about, you know, making sure that we're well financially and in positions. I could have never started my business if I hadn't gone through the journey of becoming debt-free, except for my house, I would, I would have been way too scared. Um, that's not the kind of person I am. And, and, and my business is, um, you know, I don't care how people see it, right? It, it does great work. I've, you know, got the most awards ever. Who, you know, why I care about that is that it proves that you don't have to risk it all as a business owner or as a woman um, to do great work and to advance your career and to set your own boundaries and limits. So I uh, just really want to open up people's minds as they think through their, their, um, their lives. Yeah, those are really good points. Um, 
my mom ended up becoming a banker. <laughs> so um, financial literacy was like a big key before I moved out. My, my dad was like, you got to learn how to change a tire. And my mom said, you got to balance your checkbook. <laughs> so those are like the two skills I like, you can't leave the house until you learn those things. Um, I'm still not that great at changing a tire, but I can get it done. Um, but you're <laughs> so right, Melissa, like empowering women to have that um, sense of, of, of your self-worth, your wealth, and building that for yourself um, is really important. And um, I don't think that gets taught enough in school. Like there used to be a home ec class. There really should be financial literacy in school. So um, I would strongly encourage that for for everyone um, to to make sure that they have those skills. Yes, absolutely. I I, I do also think, you know, when we talk about economic empowerment, at least for us at the Y, that was one of the three areas um, of of focus for our, our legislative agenda. So that when we you know, we went out there and we said, as YWCA's, these are these are three areas where um, we need to really move on in terms of policy, so that we can get actual change and see the numbers move, see the data represent equitable um, policies for women. Thank you all so much. Does anyone have any final thoughts they want to jump in with? Uh, just thank you, Coda. I mean, just for having this series. Um, it's something that wouldn't have been done before. And I think it's, they're just such important conversations. I'm so happy to have talked with both of you today about the role of women and mothers. And um, I, I would say, let's keep, keep doing what you're doing because you guys are doing a great job. <laughs> thank you so much. Yes, yes. Thank you, Coda. This has been amazing. Thank you, Laura. It's always wonderful talking shop and, and going deep into such um, eye-opening and kind of inspirational Um, topics like this. I think it's really, really important that, like you said before, we've said before, we normalize having these deep real talk conversations so that we can figure out what these obstacles are and then find a way to move them and then move on, right? I'm I'm tired of talking about the same issues. Let's find the fixes and then move forward from there. Yeah, absolutely. Melissa Vela Williamson, mm-hmm. you all can follow her on Twitter at, at Melissa Vela W and Laura Elizabeth Mays. You can follow her at, at Laura Elizabeth M. Um, it has been just an absolute pleasure. It's always really like it's always really just really good and cathartic to talk to other moms about <laughs> about the challenges and especially, you know, uh, underrepresented, underrepresented uh, Latinas. Um, or Latinas who are underrepresented in a lot of occupational and industry sectors. So it's good to hear uh, from both of you all in your experiences. And uh, thank you again. Uh, We look forward to continuing the conversation. If you would like to subscribe to our podcast, please do so. We have more episodes coming up touching on Public health, equity, and racial justice will be our next one. Uh, We look forward to connecting with you all as always.